Welcome to the Kebab of Kanak, episode 6, with my special guest, Michaela Gray, from Fight for Freedom. And uh, welcome, Michaela. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, Michaela, you work for an organization called Fight for Freedom, and uh, <clears throat> they work in anti-trafficking efforts, anti-human trafficking efforts. So, can you, uh, in Canada and abroad as well? Or? Yes. Okay. Can you tell us a little about, well, a lot about, uh, about that company or the, the organization you work with? Yeah, absolutely. So Fight for Freedom is dedicated to seeing the end of sex trafficking and sexual exploitation in Canada and in the world. Um, and you might be wondering, okay, why are you focusing on sexual exploitation in particular? Because we know there's different forms of human trafficking, like labor or forced organ removal or domestic servitude. Um, but as an organization, we feel that 70% of people in Ontario, for example, are trafficked for sexual exploitation. So most of the trafficking that's happening in our communities um, is that type of trafficking. And we need specialized supports and services to assist the individuals who have been impacted by this industry. Um, and so as an organization, we have four different arms, so to speak. And we, ha we focus on education, outreach, um, partnerships, and aftercare supporting individuals who have been trafficked. Nice. Uh, now, I think the assumption is with a lot of people, uh, as it was with me before I <clears throat> really started to take a look at the issue, that trafficking, you think of, uh, you know, you think of you going on vacation to some, you know, uh, Latin American country or you go overseas somewhere and that's where you're at risk of, of being nabbed. Like in the movie Taken, right? It's all the Eastern European mm -hmm. yeah. kind of uh, criminals. But uh, it happens a fair bit in Canada, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a really good point that you're making because most people think that trafficking happens overseas in other countries, but really both developing and developed countries are impacted by this issue. It's a global issue. Um, I heard a survivor share recently that in all the communities that they visited in Ontario, there's not one that is untouched from human trafficking. And so it's really pervasive in our society and in our country. In fact, in Canada, 90% of people who are trafficked in in Canada are from within Canada's borders. So they're Canadians themselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 50 to 70% of people trafficked in Canada are Indigenous peoples. Wow, 50 to 75 you said? 50 to 70%, yeah. 50 to 70, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. The uh, I was just watching uh, a news clip kind of headline whipped by on the TV screen the other day mm -hmm. about uh, GTA officers kind of breaking into, uh, or not breaking into, but <laughs> entering some condos uh, to rescue, uh, to arrest some trafficking uh, perpetrators and then rescue some victims and got me thinking about uh, when I used to manage a, a condo complex and all the Airbnb units we had there and people in and out all the time. That must be a significant challenge right now uh, in fighting trafficking because I'd imagine that traffickers use Airbnb uh, probably way more even than they use in use hotels. Mm -hmm. We're seeing an increase in traffickers using Airbnbs, um, and they're harder to, de to detect and to follow up on um, and to make those arrests happen, um, like in a hotel or motel. But we're also seeing increasing movements online into, um, and, and trafficking can happen within someone's home, right? So uh, it's in all these different places in our communities, and so I think um, our law enforcement are making great efforts in order to combat um, trafficking in those places but yes of course there's a lot more work that needs to be done into um, the way that trafficking and what the way exploitation looks in our communities is moving I didn't answer that very well so I'm sorry <laughs> I'm like oh should I drink more coffee this morning <laughs> um, I heard from friend Renelle Bruder she uh, 
created an initiative called the Rise Initiative, and she herself is a Canadian that came out of uh, being a sex trafficking victim and now is trying to uh, raise awareness and bring education and, and help uh, raise funds and, and create tools to get people out of that life. Uh, and she said something that was very interesting that makes sense, but I never really thought about it before. When you think about <coughs> trafficking, you think I think of, like again, that movie Taken, right, where you have these thuggish guys, you know, drugging you at bars and stealing you away. And I'm sure that is a, a component of what happens. But for her, it was, she was just kind of courted in gently by another, a slightly older female that had like a nice condo. And she's like, well, you're only a couple years older than me, like 19. Like, how do you have all this money to have this condo and these things? And then she introduced her to her friend or the guy that was, the men that were helping her with that condo. And she kind of slowly got sucked in, but it was more of a, she got kind of more pulled in by the charm and, and, and people being really nice to you and creating an actual emotional connection and bond. So if you feel you don't do what you, they say, you're disappointing them or you feel obliged uh, that you owe them something. And uh, it, it's hard, you kind of, that relationship's hard, hard to pull out of. So can you speak to that a little bit? What kind of, you know, I'm sure there's several types of trafficking. Maybe what, what does mm -hmm. it kind of look like on the ground? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, in the Canadian context, um, a third of people who are being trafficked are done so by a boyfriend. And often people, um, like the individual you just spoke of, are trafficked by a trusted friend or a boyfriend. And so we know that traffickers are expert psychological manipulators. They prey on the needs of people. So whether that's someone is desiring a romantic relationship or someone um, wants to be loved or someone is in the need of shelter or maybe they're lacking material possessions, like they really want those fancy new shoes or that purse. A trafficker will be able to see someone, identify their vulnerabilities, and find a way to meet those needs in their life. And so they build trust. Um, they, you know, often shower people with gifts and love. And so there is what you mentioned, that slow process. We refer to it in anti-trafficking work as the grooming process, mm -hmm. um, building that bond between the trafficker and the person that's being trafficked. And so it makes it really difficult for someone to leave the situation they're in. Um, in Canada, it can take seven to ten times for someone to exit their trafficking situation. There's also new psychological studies that are being done on that bond that's formed between the trafficked person and their trafficker, and it's referred to as something similar to Stockholm Syndrome. And that's when a child is kidnapped but develops a bond with the person who's kidnapped them because they're meeting their hierarchy of needs, right? Shelter, offering protection, clothes. And so, you know, if you take that child when, when they're a grown adult and want them to testify against their kidnapper, it's a very difficult thing. And we see that similarly in this context when you're asking a person to testify against their trafficker who was also their boyfriend, um, partner or trusted friend who provided for them in so many ways in their life and created almost like a family type unit. Um, it's really difficult for them to be put in that situation. And, and I think that's partly why we have a very low conviction rate here in mm -hmm. Canada too. When you're in anti-trafficking work, <clears throat> so I guess how, how do you go about identifying people in this scenario and how do you go about helping them exit? I know I, that phrase comes to mind, can lead a horse to water, we can't make him drink. Like, I think it has to be that person's choice to kind of, to exit it. But how do you, how do you extend that lifeline? How, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really good question that you're asking, because sometimes in anti-trafficking work, there's this 
concept of rescuing, like needing to go in and rescue someone. And we for sure see that when it comes to people who are under the age of 18, so mm. children, right? Or we think internationally of India or the Philippines, um, where there are, are, are minors being trafficked in certain contexts where, you know, police need to go do a raid and help people out. I would say... In Canada, from my experience, um, personally, what, what I think is more effective is building a relationship with an individual, um, building trust between you and someone else and, and meeting them where they're at, hearing um, just what their dreams and hopes are. And so within Fight for Freedom, our aftercare program is really designed to meet everyone's unique and individual-based needs. So it's not like, here's a one-fit model. You come in, we're going to ask you all these questions that might trigger you, and then um, say that this is what you have to do. It's really trying to understand what do you what do you need? How can we best support you and come alongside you and journey with you, not just refer you to other places, but really do life with you um, to help you in your healing journey. What, um, so... What kind of, well, I guess, well, I'll backtrack a little bit. For Fight for Freedom, tell me a little bit about the organization, kind of how it started and uh, you know, a little bit about it. And then kind of what you said, like it provides the different services, like aftercare, for example. What does that look like practically? What, what does aftercare, I, I can assume what aftercare means, but what does it look like on the day-to-day? Yeah, great question. Um, so Fight for Freedom, um, received charitable status in 2016. So we're yes. relatively, we're a relatively new um, and young organization. But um, what happened was a young person had come forward and shared their story of exploitation um, with someone and, and they wanted to find a way to help this young person, to help this individual. And their story prompted a group of people to get together to figure out, you know, what can we do to help prevent others from being trafficked like this young person was? And what can we do to support people who have been trafficked to help them um, as they exit their situation? And so it started with just one person who went to a group and was like kind of like a focus group, just dreaming, brainstorming ways that they could make an impact. And so it started out with doing outreach in areas where people are vulnerable to exploitation and building relationships with them, um, showing them love and reminding them that they have value and worth. And from there, the organization has um, moved into different facets and arms. So I know you're asking specifically about aftercare, like what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? So um, with the people we're journeying with, it can look so different and vast based on what their needs are, right? Some individuals identify that they need to be in a safe house, a protective environment um, where they can um, feel safe cared for, maybe their basic needs are met, like food or clothing. And so there are safe houses in Ontario um, and across Canada that we can refer folks to. But sometimes for people, it's um, maybe they need support in independent living. So finding an apartment, maybe it's obtaining job skills. So helping them um, find volunteer experience or getting an internship or helping them build their resumes. Sometimes that's assisting people with fulfilling their dreams of completing school, whether that's high school or um, a university degree. So with every person that we're um, working alongside with, it looks different every day. And um, just trying to realize that each individual person that's impacted by this issue is an individual person, right? Who have their own dreams, their um, own hopes and plans for the future. And so our vision and our role Related to just um, you know, meet people where they're at and and help and empower them to um, live life abundantly. 
to say it uh, takes a village to raise a child. You know, mm. I think it takes a village really to do anything these days. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and you mentioned Fight for Freedom works a lot on partnerships. Mm-hmm. And I'd imagine in, in your, with your aftercare, whether it be getting them to a safe house, helping them with job skills, help getting them back to school, or whatever that may be, you're probably relying a lot on partner organizations and entities Absolutely. to do that. Can you speak about, I don't know what you're allowed to say or <laughs> yeah. not, but uh, can you speak about some of the organizations that you partner with and kind of how, like what those connections you've made and kind of how that, yeah. how the whole machine kind of works? Absolutely. Um, I love partnerships. I get super excited because I believe in the power of collaboration. And um, I would say Fight for Freedom's vision as well is like, let's collaborate, let's connect, let's um, find ways to work together. And one of my favorite things to share with people is that whatever gift you've been given, whatever talent that you have can be used in some way to fight trafficking. I think there's a lot of education um, that's happening in our society, which is a really good thing. For a long time, no one knew anything. And now there's more awareness raising that's happening. But an issue is there's a disconnect from people understanding about how they can get involved, right? So they hear this um, horrific crime that's taking place in our backyards and then almost moving towards a position of apathy because being like, I I don't want to go there. That's too dark. That's too heavy. And I, I really feel powerless in fighting it. But the, the truth is, the fact is that anyone can help no matter what their skill set is. So I'll give you a few examples of what I mean. So um, part of our efforts are outreach. So within outreach, we have over 150 volunteers across Ontario and different provinces in Canada and we're in South Asia as well um, going out and meeting with individuals who are impacted by the sex industry and throughout that process like we have people who come forward and donate items that can be put together for gift bags we know people who have um, a heart of encouragement and just want to write a nice encouraging note that can be used to impact someone's life or baking cookies Um, in some of our outreach areas we hand out cookies to people and so I know people who are like, I love to bake. And that's a way that we can impact someone's life um, and just make a meaningful interaction with them by giving them cookies. But it also includes like someone recently came up to me and was like, I'm a mechanic. Can I be a part of this? We're like, absolutely. Let's talk about potentially, you know, seeing if we could start up an internship program. So for working with an individual who's exiting the industry, who's like, I would love to learn mechanical skills. Then we could have something in place to partner with them and set them up. Um, That being said, too, we have a robust number of counselors and therapists and dentists um, who are like, hey, I want to do something. I want to help. How can I connect with you? Um, Recently, I've been connecting with a lot of people in the healthcare field and trying to figure out how we can better equip our nurses and our doctors um, to be aware of the signs of human trafficking, but then also to have resources present and also be a safe space when someone comes and say they are being trafficked so they're not being re-traumatized or re-triggered in those environments. Um, A really exciting partnership that I've been working on developing is with a financial institution and they actually fight human trafficking Uh through um, bank statements. They identify transactions that are happening and can track it down to individuals who could potentially be traffickers. So they're fighting trafficking that way and I'm trying to partner with them through research and education as well. So there's basically, I could literally talk to you for an hour alone just about partnerships and the importance of how every individual person could help make a difference and could help fight this injustice. Um, I tell young people too, like one of the most um, 
effective things an individual can do and to start with is to be an advocate. And what that means is someone who takes the information that they've learned, the knowledge that they've heard. So anyone listening to this podcast too, right? They're learning new information and share it with another person. We think being an advocate is like this big fancy thing. Maybe you need to be a politician or have an organization behind you, um, but you can share the knowledge that you've gained about what human trafficking is, what it looks like, how it happens with others, and that could prevent someone from being trafficked. And that's a great way to fight it as well. What does it look like? <clears throat> if I'm Joe Blow, doing my, you know, going through my daily motions, going to work, coming home to my family, going to school, whatever it is I'm doing, how do I spot spot a trafficking scenario occurring? Like, how what what does it look like? How do I know what to look for? Mm-hmm. So there's a number of indicators that have been identified um, by law enforcement, by people who have been impacted by sexual exploitation, um, that they share with others. So. Um, what's really important to note is that one of these things that I could be sharing, and I'm not going <laughs> to know the full list off the top of my head, but one of these things alone won't mean that someone's being um, trafficked, but they could be indicators to say, hey, maybe there's a red flag here. Maybe this is something that um, I, I can do and share. So um, uh, one of the indicators, for example, is not having any um, documentation, any government document, any ID. How that might translate is if you're talking, like I had a conversation with someone recently recently and I was asking them um, if they could visit a family member in an institution and they said no I can't because I don't have any ID I, I don't have anything with my name on it so that for me is an indicator okay like that's just just one hmm maybe something's not right in this situation um, another indicator is if someone identifies that they are repaying someone debt um, through labor or sex and so you can identify that there's some kind of bondage and that again might happen in a conversation it's happened in conversations with me where someone's like I owe this person $60,000 I have to keep working here until I pay that off to them right but what we know in trafficking situations is that over time that trafficker will put interest mm-hmm. on that amount that's owed and then also be giving them food clothing shelter at the same time other indicators could be um Uh, signs of abuse and bruising, cigarette burns, but also tattooing and branding. So um, sometimes um, traffickers will brand their names in particular on the people that they are trafficking. And um, and so that could be an indicator as well as someone's um, avoiding eye contact. Um, seeming anxious, fearful, uh, particularly around police. Um, and again, someone could be fearful around police for a number of reasons, but I know um, I was just talking to hotel staff at an event earlier this week and they were saying um, they were able to identify once because there was a young person who was looking down, wouldn't look at the attendant, was looking really, really nervous. And then two different people came up to book rooms side by side, but they weren't allowed to communicate. They weren't allowed to talk. It was clear that their movements were being controlled by someone else. Mm. And so it's kind of having that um, a sense and understanding, like, is that person um, free to speak when they want? Are they free to move when they want? Um, and a trafficker won't allow someone to make their own choices often, like even the color of their nails. They really try to control the situation. So um, what that could look like in a Tim Hortons line, for example, is someone doesn't have their wallet, doesn't have their own things, they're avoiding eye contact, looking down, and someone else is ordering everything for them, won't give them the choice, and say they go to the washroom and that person follows them and stands right outside the door, right? So um, there's a number of ways that you can identify um, indicators of trafficking. And maybe I can share with you too a website afterwards that kind of goes in more detail all the different (laughs) indicators that you can see and then 
Everybody else can kind of go out and... Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I don't have my... Wait, I do have my phone. Because you can cut this out, right? Because I can look oh, it up okay. right now. Just keep it going. It's all good. Okay, sorry. Give me one second. Oh, it's called, it. like... It's it's our Ontario government website, but it's a really good one. Um, government of Ontario website. Also, when I'm speaking to these things, I normally have slides. So, I'm like, I hope I don't forget something really important. <laughs> Human trafficking. Unforgivable. Um, okay. So the Ontario government has been doing a lot of work to raise awareness on human trafficking, and they actually have an amazing online um, training program called helpedtraffickedpersons.org. And you can go on there and take a 10-hour course, it's approximately 10 hours, and learn the signs, indicators of trafficking, how you can identify it. But also, if you just want like a list of the indicators or some of the indicators, um, you can go to mcss.gov.on.ca, and there's a lot of information about what human trafficking looks like in Ontario in particular. Oh, excellent, excellent. So uh, make sure, guys, uh, listeners, you go to that, that website and check that out. Uh, <clears throat> I'm curious... Uh, with all these anti-trafficking efforts trying to get people out of that life and help them out and give them kind of a, a hand to their future, do, would you offhand know a percentage of people that after that tend to fall back into trafficking? Does that happen often? Does it happen? Does that happen often? And if so, uh, is there anything that we know of that we can do to prevent that from happening? Hmm. That's a great question. So we know um, it takes seven to ten times for someone to exit. So seven to ten times of kind of going back right. and going, you know, going back to their trafficker, exiting, going back right. to their trafficker, exiting. Um, it's even happened with a good friend of mine that I was mentoring. I was, yeah, hanging out with her each month and just doing life with her. And then she ended up going back to her trafficker. And it's a really difficult thing. And it's a, it's hard to um, understand what someone... Um, who has been trafficked has really been um, subjected to when it comes to that psychological manipulation. And so your question of what can we do to help reduce that number is a key question I wrestle with. I actually did my master's of education um, on sex trafficking and I went to India and I was interviewing women and girls who have been trafficked. And why I went to India is because what they're doing, um, from my um, research and knowledge, specifically a few organizations to help people reintegrate into society after after they've been trafficked, is really unparalleled. And so there's a few common things that are really needed in helping someone exit their trafficking situation and to reduce that number. One of those is housing, having safe affordable housing. Um, we have a few safe houses that are emerging in Ontario. We have no what's called first stage housing. So that's someone, if they're in a situation, maybe they um, have an addiction and um, uh, they just like literally got removed from a trafficking situation. There's nowhere that currently has trafficking training in place that will take that person in until um, they've maybe gone to detox or something like that. So there's a huge need for housing. And, and we know that providing safe housing is, is one of the ways that really helps people um, uh, to stay out and from going back to their trafficking situation. Another thing is community, mm. building intentional community around well, people. Like a social support network. Like I, I'm, I'm leading mm-hmm. a group of people that are familiar with into mm-hmm. strange land here. 
you know, a, a group of welcoming people that I can connect with as my new community. I, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, um, like peer support groups and things like that, but also helping people obtain job skills, vocational skills in an area that they're passionate and interested about, um, as well as providing them an income to give them an alternative means of, um, of employment and just finding a way forward in life. So in India, they have something really interesting called freedom businesses and freedom businesses that are specifically designed and set up to employ people who have been trafficked. And so they have that community vibe because they're quite, um, the one that I went to, that was my favorite called the loyal workshop. It's quite small. And they said they'll stop growing when it stops feeling like a family. There's a sense of accountability. There's a sense of trust. They have a trained counseling professional on site. So if someone's triggered for any reason during the workplace, they can go and receive support. Um, in freedom businesses, sometimes they have a daycare on site. So people who have children can bring their kids there and have that safe place to go as well. Um, freedom businesses sometimes connect people with different educational pathways. So maybe they start getting different training and skills in these spaces, and then they can exit um, and you know start working somewhere else or finishing their school. And sometimes they help them even with finding housing and things like that. So I think freedom businesses are an ingenious way to provide that kind of wraparound support and care and community, but also give people tangible skills um, and experiences that will enable them to be successful in their life and to um, reintegrate into society, so to speak, and be empowered to live independently. I think that's really a goal that we want for these individuals is that they can pursue their dreams and hopes and plans for their life um, and feel empowered to do that as like an individual, as a member of society. Can you, can you just kind of bring, oh, maybe you've already thought about it, I'm sure you have, but uh, I'm just hearing you talk about the stuff that's needed here in Ontario and in Canada that exists like in India and stuff where they're doing a really good job. <clears throat> what steps could we take to help get things like first, first stage housing and those freedom uh, jobs, freedom companies. Like how, how could we get that kind of a thing implemented here in Ontario, like in our home? How do we do that? That's okay. So there's um, a number of organizations and anti-trafficking um, people who are a part of this work. I'm going to re-say that sentence because it didn't come out right. But yeah, there's a number of NGOs and community groups and um, advocates in Ontario who um, are raising awareness about trafficking. And it's a really exciting time, if I can use that language, um, because I think like we're start, we've just seen the tip of the iceberg for like the last five years being like trafficking happens. And now we're like, hey, look, under the water, there's all this other stuff that we need to address, right? Um, and I just even think about someone recently and whose story actually was kind of the um, reason why I got involved in this work, but she called me wondering what intergenerational supports exist, mm. like what exists for the children of people who have been impacted mm -hmm. by sexual exploitation and that intergenerational trauma. We're not, we're not there yet. We're not there yet as a, as a province, as a country, and I hope we will be. But in terms of some of those immediate things that we need, which I see are, we need housing. We absolutely need housing. We need funding um, uh, for, for people who are exiting at d diverse stages. So we just talked about, um, it takes seven to 10 times for someone to exit. A lot of the funding is contingent on very, like funding that's available for people who have been impacted by this crime on a very few factors. So um, for example, most of the funding is only available for women. Um, but we know that there are men and boys being trafficked. We also know there's people who identify as non-binary who are being trafficked and there's very few supports for those individuals. Um, uh, 
I don't know where I was going there, so hopefully you can cut out the sentence. <laughs> but, uh, oh yeah, so just like funding and support. So we need a diverse way to look at individuals who might be, you know, on their seventh time exiting and they might be on their own for six months trying to do life before they seek assistance and help. They don't fall within a 24-hour, 72-hour crisis window, mm-hmm. right? And so when someone calls seeking support years later or figures out, most people who are being trafficked don't even know that they're being trafficked. So when someone maybe down the road identifies, hey, that was my story. Hey, I was being trafficked. Are there supports to help me? Having more flexibility in ways to um, help those individuals. So some of those, the first things that I see as how people can be involved in getting these initiatives going is one, um, making sure that folks are just trained and informed. So whether that's going to help traffickpersons.org and learning about trafficking, um, because I think we need the education and prevention piece first. But as people become more educated um, in terms of starting safe housing. Funding is the biggest thing, mm-hmm. right? But I've heard of a safe house opening because someone felt really compelled to be like, I have a house I would like to donate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I would, I'm gonna donate this building to help support people impacted by this industry or different creative ways of like rent to owning, so to speak, right? So an NGO who doesn't have, you know, $2 million sitting in the bank to run and sustain this housing now has a building where they can begin to employ this work. Um, but also on the freedom business side, it might just be someone who has a creative idea about how a business could operate and start. So one idea I have, and I'm free to share it because if someone starts it before me, that's amazing. <laughs> like it needs to happen. Um, but I think like having a hair school, for example, um, because with a hair school, you could control the clientele. You can make it a really safe space. It's something someone could do in their home eventually if they wanted. Sort of like a hair, like hair? Yeah, okay. like hair, haircuts, hairstyles. Um, you know, they could branch out and do their own business and help doing hair for weddings or hair for fun shows. So that's just like one example of a freedom businesses, but freedom business. But I see us with a need of many with diverse skills. I'd love to see like a center, a hub where there's different um, job training experiences. In India, they just opened up a school to train people who have been trafficked to become um, paralegals. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they actually get to be involved in impacting the law and part of convictions because they understand from their experience of what actually what trafficking looks like and now they can come alongside others um so that justice happens in in society so i guess um my response would be you know if if after you learn and you understand what's happening it's kind of evaluate what you have in your own life you know what's something that you could potentially give to help an organization that's already doing this work or maybe there's an idea that you have or a skill that you have that you could partner with us you could partner with another organization to get something started i don't know if you know the numbers but just kind of following my curiosity here when you just mentioned that um, <clears throat> a minute ago that you have to kind of meet these specific uh, prerequisites before you get funding right <clears throat> and i can see that could be certainly a challenge but he said a lot of it has to be the fact that you're female. You mm-hmm. said there's uh, non-binary or there's male that are that are trafficked, that there's nothing really set up for them. Now, I remember watching a, a video talking about, and this is U.S., this isn't Canada context, mm. but I'd imagine that it's it's reflective of the Canadian situation too, where there's like women's shelters everywhere. Uh, you know, when you look at the country as a whole, and there was one shelter for men, one for like abused men and stuff like this. <clears throat> um, how difficult is it for uh, somebody that doesn't fit that uh, that prerequisite, that isn't a female, for a man or not binary, how difficult it is for them to 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 exit, to to find their way, mm. out, to find a support service for themselves, a support network. Uh, you know, uh, what's your experience with that? 
would say it's very, very difficult. Um, it's very, very difficult for a person who identifies as a woman mm -hmm. to exit because the supports are lacking. But when you talk about um, yeah, men or folks who identify as non-binary or folks who are part of the LGBTQ um, and two-spirit community, um, the resources are even more lacking. Um, we have just started as an organization, a focus group, um, focused on you know what supports and services are available for folks who identify, for example, as LGBTQ and wouldn't feel safe in any um, uh, mainstream type shelters. And so we're, we're trying to take an active look at it, but I would say it, it's lacking. It's lacking. But um, not, I don't want to also not highlight that I think the reason why there's a lot of um, supports for women is because we know that's the majority. Yeah. So 99% of people who are being trafficked for sexual exploitation are women. Um, so it is a small percentage, but we are seeing a rise in particularly young Indigenous boys in Ontario who are being trafficked. So I think uh, we need to ensure that in our conversations, in our education, that we don't just focus on one gender and we need to realize that anyone can be trafficked literally anyone right it's not a particular demographic um, although i mean 50 to 70 percent are indigenous but it's not a particular set of things that have to happen in your life like a socioeconomic background or or gender like mm -hmm. trafficking doesn't discriminate um i know someone who was trafficked who grew up in a middle class christian family was at university um in a really admirable field and while away at university it was um you know, material things and her fear of debt from school and things like that that were lacking in her life that made her susceptible to being trafficked. And she was trafficked while, you know, being at university. And so I think we need to take away some of the stereotypes um, that have been formed in the conversation and realize that, yeah, anyone can be trafficked and we need to find ways to support people who have been impacted by this horrific crime um, in many different facets of life. And that goes the same thing when I mentioned that woman who called me asking about intergenerational supports, right? Mm -hmm. So um, she was trafficked when she was 14 in Ontario. Um, this was about 50 years ago now. And so now she's, you know, asking about like supports and services that are available. Um, but where, where, like how many organizations are there? How, how much government funding is available for people who years later are now seeking support? So that's mm -hmm. kind of how we need to rethink this and change the conversation. That's a struggle. Um, yeah, sorry, I was going to share a personal story, but I'm debating. <laughs> uh, it was not trafficked at all, but uh, was a victim of sexual abuse at the hands of a, of a uh, adult female babysitter when I was four and 39 now. I just think, like, okay, what, what, can, what can someone do, like, 30 years after the fact, you know? And I can, I, can, I can really imagine a struggle, like, this was so long ago, what supports are there for me now? What can actually be done now to, you know, there's no... <clears throat> you can feel like you're kind of in a little bit of a no man's land. Like, what do, what do I do here? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. So I, I can, I can uh, really appreciate that. Um, anyways, yeah, sorry to digress. <laughs> oh, no, thanks for sharing with me. And I'm, I'm sorry that, no, okay. that happened um, So, um, <laughs> quick, quick shift to topic. <laughs> we're, we're just getting back onto partnerships and things <clears> that can be done. Um, a, a passion of mine, uh, working in defensive tactics and teaching self-defense or working in security uh, and kind of going through what I've gone through in my life. I've always obviously been a, like a smaller kid. Like I was super tiny and it wasn't until after high school where I started to put some meat on my bones, but uh, always, you know, was the victim of bullying, was the victim of this and that and the other. So 
<clears throat> I really kind of grew a passion for protecting people and standing up for people that have been bullied. And uh, that's part of the reason why, I, most of the reason probably why I got into teaching self-defense and working in security. But um, really wanting to reach out and uh, get, pa I really wanted to reach out and help some sort of uh, efforts like the Sandy Trafficking efforts and uh, help, help provide some sort of resources to people. With our Grain Man Conference, we're going to be giving a portion of our proceeds to Fight for Freedom. And, uh, you know, I would encourage anybody else to check out uh, Fight for Freedom to, uh, to provide resources to them. To provide. So you're looking for not just money, I'm sure, but like you said, there's people with, uh, that can provide skills, mentoring. Uh, maybe somebody listening right now has a home they want to donate, uh, any of those kind of things. But um, what, what, what can these listeners do to help like today? If they hear it, they feel compelled, what could they do? Yeah. So what they can do, um, I always start with educate yourself. I think that's really important. So you can continue just to learn about trafficking, be aware of what's happening in the news, educate yourself, um, which would then potentially put you in a place where you can start to share with others, advocate and um, educate others as well. Other things that you can do is with Fight for Freedom, you can volunteer in many different roles. So we have admin roles, we have outreach roles. Um, we're looking for men to volunteer and partner with us. So we are looking for people to just volunteer and support in a number of different ways. Um, we also, um, um, sorry, my brain. <laughs> It's early morning. Contagious. Yeah, yeah. Um, another way that people can get involved is, yes, partnering with us financially. And that can look a whole bunch of different ways. So maybe someone's listening and they're like, you know what? I really want to give towards aftercare, supporting someone who's exiting a trafficking situation. Um, they can make that request that they want to support, um, give there specifically. We have work taking place in South Asia. So maybe there's a listener who's like, I want to see how I can support work in South Asia. And they can connect with us about that too. We have upcoming events um, throughout the year. So we have a conference in April where people could come and learn more. We have different fundraising events throughout the year so people could get involved and do something that way. But also, yeah, skills are absolutely needed. So maybe you're a counselor, maybe you're a therapist, maybe you're um, a baker, <laughs> maybe you have a lot of experience when it comes to the law. You know, I had a lawyer reach out to me being like, hey, can I help support somehow? And it's like, yes. And um, sometimes people are willing to give their services pro bono to support people who have been trafficked as they exit. So all of those things are really helpful and can make an immediate impact here in our community. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that conference coming up in April? Yeah, sure. So um, our conference in April is a two-day conference, and um, we'll have a keynote speaker whose name hasn't been announced yet, but I'm really excited. They're a wonderful person, and so information <laughs> will be on our website soon. Um, but um, it's just an opportunity to learn more about trafficking. We'll have lots of different breakout sessions and talk about topics like the connection between pornography and trafficking and how that's happening in our society. We'll be talking about, you know, who are the Johns? That's the word we use to describe who are the people who purchase sex. Um and who are the traffickers? How does it happen? And just having conversations about these different areas, also a conversation just about um, indigenous peoples, our colonial history and trafficking and how those things are connected. So if you want just to educate yourself, learn more, make connections in the field, um, I'd encourage you to come. Does the conference have a name? Uh, the Empower Conference. The Empower Conference. And we can find information about that uh, on... Our website, fightforfreedom.ca. Fight for okay, great. Um, you touched on a couple of things that I'd like to kind of dig into a little sure. bit more if it's okay. Yeah, of course. Um, you talked about the link. So three things. <clears throat> the link between uh, pornography and trafficking and what that looks like today. Mm -hmm. uh, colonialism and indigenous uh, peoples and how that looks in trafficking today. And then who are the Johns? Who are the people that 
purchase the sex for, and uh, basically victimizes people. Mm. Can we kind of cover those topics? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I'll start with the first one. So um, there is a connectedness between pornography and sexual exploitation. We know that the average age of exposure is 11 years old. We also know now with... To pornography or to trafficking? To pornography, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, the average age of exposure to pornography is 11 years old. We also know through um, studies on psychology how it's impacting the brain and the development in particular of young people's brains. And um, when someone views a video of pornography, they're, when they watch that video, they view the person as an object, mm. that part of the brain, instead of a person. There are connections because of that that are leading to um, uh, an inability for individuals to understand and to have healthy relationships. There's an increase in violence in relationships. And um, uh, pornography is also highly addictive. Mm. Some um, uh, psychologists would argue and say that pornography is more addictive than drugs, uh, certain kinds of drugs. And so how this relates to trafficking is that 50% of people who have been trafficked um, share that they were forced into pornography mm. while they were being trafficked. Currently in Canada, when someone views pornography, they don't know if that person's consenting. Right. Second, they don't know the age of the person that's being recorded. And so um, someone, by watching pornography, can really be fueling an industry and that's... Totally unaware. Totally unaware, yeah, that's um, uh, tied to sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. And so what I encourage folks um, just to look into, to learn more about, but also really helpful resources, because we know the this is a rising addiction in our society. Like our government is starting to pay attention to because it's having damaging effects on how we just operate um, in, in our day-to-day -day lives. And so there's a website called fightthenewdrug.org. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's about <laughs> pornography, gives a lot of information, scientific-based um, examples of just um, like the brain and, and pornography, but also it's really helpful. And if someone has an addiction to pornography or wants a resource to be able to talk to their kids about it, or um, it just provides um, a support where people could go and help conquer their addiction to porn or be able to educate themselves to help someone that they know that is having an addiction. Mm -hmm. All right. Wow. So fight. That's fightthenewdrug.org. Correct. I'll yes. Checking that. That's really interesting. Um, colonialism, like uh, basically you said, fifty to seventy percent in Canada of traffic victims are indigenous. So kind of how uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Where do I start? <laughs> um, so we, as a a country, as a nation. Um, for years, um, from the readings that I've done, from the stories I've been shared, have really failed Indigenous peoples, and we continue to. Um, when settlers came to Canada and Indigenous peoples were here, um, the goal for most folks was to wipe out the Indigenous people culture, to assimilate them into a European mindset frame um, there 
are a lot of things that have happened over history and in time that have created generations of traumatic experiences from um, taking away people's language Mm. to taking away um, their rights to living in their and their space in their communities um, to just even um, uh, their shared voice in, in what's happening in, in the political sphere and in the nation um, in which w- was theirs and was taken away. Like there's just, there's been so many injustices that Indigenous peoples have faced. And so um, uh, we've seen that even in recent years with residential schools and where kids were taken from their families. Um, There's so much sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Um, there was, yeah, the language that was taken away, families taken apart from one another. We could talk about the 60 scoops where kids were taken out of their home. And so we see generations and generations and generations of, of, of Indigenous peoples who have been not only treated unfairly and unjustly, but inhumanely inhumanely um and so how that relates to trafficking now um it's it's an it's an ongoing violence systemic race systemic i would say racism against indigenous peoples um from an ideology of the hurtful harmful ideology that individual indigenous sorry the hurtful ideology that indigenous people are somehow less than Mm -hmm. Or somehow less than, and um, there's a number of factors, and and we could go deep into history, but it's kind of that ongoing hurt and harm, ongoing violence um, against Indigenous peoples in general, but women in particular. Like we know the missing and murdered Indigenous women. There's hundreds, hundreds of cases of unresolved. Um, women who have gone missing and murdered from indigenous communities. Um, some of those have been trafficked um, or could have been trafficked um, along the way. So there's some of those um, interlinking thoughts. And if people want more like more information about this or, or um, kind of the, the, I can't share this very well in a, like, you know, like in a, a short couple minutes, um, but there's a lot of research articles and resources I could point people to that would be kind of like, just help them at the beginning surface level understand how violence has been perpetuated over years. There was, uh, n- not to digress too much, but you're mm-hmm. reminding me now of a, of a movie. I don't know if you've seen it, Wind River? Mm-mm. You need to watch that movie. It was, my, it was probably the best movie of whatever year it came out, last year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's centered in America, but it was focusing on that, on the missing and murdered indigenous uh, women mm-hmm. and girls. And this one was about one specific case, but uh, it was it was really eye opening. <laughs> it was really eye opening. Yeah. And actually, uh, this week, uh, as you know, like next week is our what, what are we on today? The twelfth today is it? Mm-hmm. So in what nine days we have our federal election, and the indigenous uh, topic is one that is front and center right now um, during this election. And the last, the last week we had an English and a French leaders debate, and this was a topic uh, that was covered. So it's, you know, it's very timely that <laughs> we're having this discussion yeah. today. Yeah, and I, and I think sadly, like, we've just been misinformed, um, 
uneducated or you know told incorrect information and you know you're in public school or wherever and taught history of indigenous Mm. peoples like we were not yeah there's we've done a, a terrible wrong um in our country and there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of moving forward, uh, in terms of re- reconciliation, um, and ensuring that Indigenous voices are heard. And that's why I'm kind of struggling and wrestling with speaking about this too, because I myself am not an Indigenous person. I'm still in a place of learning um, ab- about all of this. And so um, I want to be very careful with my words and how I approach this, because I haven't been impacted in the ways that my Indigenous friends have or um my fellow indigenous canadian citizens and so um i think we need to have indigenous voices being um uplifted and shared um and because indigenous people are speaking out like against this and against this injustice and finding ways to wrestle through how can we be allies how can we um just support um what they understand from their experiences and um, and the truth and the knowledge that they bring, right? Like mm. I, I really want to spend more time sitting and, and just um, listening, <laughs> listening, yeah, yeah in yeah. order to figure out, because I don't have the answers. <laughs> I don't you have the answers. Two years, yeah. one mouth, we use them in proportion, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, um, like outside, like, just surface level, you think of who are the Johns, who are the people that go out and get trafficking victims. I don't necessarily think that and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't necessarily think someone's like, I'm going to go out tonight and have sex with a trafficking victim. They're just looking for their fix, right? Their drug, whatever mm-hmm. that is, or they're meeting their need. And they don't necessarily put too much thought into, <clears throat> you know, uh, who that person is. You know, I go, star, to, I, go to, that, yeah. I go to a strip club. Uh, I go to, and we're both uh, originally in Toronto, right? And every block, you're looking at those second floor massage parlors with the neon signs, mm-hmm. right? And you know exactly that what those are and don't know if they're trafficked or not or if they're independent business or, or what the deal is but I think that in the sex trade at least in Canada I mean I think men go out and you know take advantage of that without even putting a second thought into who the person is on the other side mm-hmm. you know? um, so what do, I guess you've identified who the Johns are typically. What what does that look like? Like, what's their, outside of just, like, getting their fix, what's that motivation? <laughs> so I don't have an answer for that last question. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> um, I would actually, yeah, down the road, like to do, like, evidence-informed research on this area and find ways just to speak to people who um, identify themselves as Johns or purchasers of sex to figure out these different um, systematic issues that are at play right like it's not there's not an easy answer to fixing trafficking it's mm-hmm. not going to happen overnight and we need to look at it from all these different angles um just the way you were talking about um purchasers of sex or um you know how it happens in these different locations it makes me think of um a survivor i heard just speak on thursday night michelle fruscarelli and um she was sharing that you know, most people who were coming, like the busiest hours were between nine to five and people oh. were coming in suits and like from work and different things. Some are, When you they're know, not going to be expected, you know, where they don't have to be missing from home, they're expected to be out of work, they can hide it from their families. That sounds, that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, like, who are the purchasers of sex? They're soccer parents, they're um, teachers, doctors, 
Um, we're constantly seeing in media now, you know, whether it's famous people or politicians or, um, you know, people we look up to in our community, like doctors who are involved in child exploitation and child pornography incidents. And so, um, uh, a, pur- a purchaser of sex really can be anyone too and that's something we need to communicate as well like anyone can be a trafficker anyone can be trafficked and anyone can be a purchaser of sex and sometimes we condemn one of those groups like more than another and i what i mean by that is and what michelle was sharing that's really stuck with me is like the purchasers of sex we want to be like put them behind bars like there's like you know a lot of anger towards them being like you know they they went and, and bought service from a 15 year old girl right we just like you know why isn't there like heavier penalties and and i would say yeah like we we, we do need to have <laughs> heavier penalties and so i don't want to say not that but we also need to understand yeah the motivation like why are people um seeking these services you know how does someone end up being a trafficker there's different things at play in society that are driving um these different individuals to make these choices and so how can we better figure out and and understand um each individual that intersects with this issue so that we can tackle demand so that we can tackle um, not only demand, but you know, um, the the systems that are at play that that lead someone to to become a trafficker. Like, how does that happen, right? And what are what are the systemic um, issues that are happening in our society that even make someone vulnerable to being trafficked, right? Like, we know like a low education, socioeconomic conditions, um, people who are bullied, marginalized youth. Like, so what things can we be doing to help reduce the vulnerabilities of someone being trafficked? So I think there needs to be a lot of work in particular as it relates to research and um, just just listening to people's stories from different sides, even when it's hard, even mm-hmm. when it's ugly and difficult. Um, um, and I'm, I'm saying ugly and, and difficult more so like on the people who are, think are perpetrators of this crime. But if we don't understand like why people are being led to... Um, you know, enact this injustice or or to be purchasers, um, I think we're going to have a hard time fighting the demand side. So Man, yeah, it is. Well, <clears throat> multifaceted issue for sure and very complex. I don't, yeah, you're right. I don't think there's any, any simple answers. And I think you're right. Like you said, with the last five years, it's been a topic that started to kind of come to the surface and be more in conversation. I think that's right. I've seen a lot more... Uh, you know, in the news, I've seen, I've heard a lot more in, in my networks and people talking about uh, about trafficking as, as a problem in, in, in Canada. And so we're seeing, I think, more awareness being created. Uh, thanks to organizations thanks. like yours. Thanks. Um, and, I, you know, hopefully this means uh, good things for the future. Yeah. And on the education front and raising awareness, I think we need to make some of those connections that you mentioned, right? Like between strip clubs and parlors and Airbnbs and hotels and motels, because um, you were you were sharing, expressing, you know, someone might be going to these places and not thinking about, oh, this is someone's son, this is someone's daughter, this person actually might not be here by choice, you know. Right. We, um, and so. Um, again, Michelle was sharing the other day um, was that we need to educate the Johns. Like we need to educate the people who are purchasing sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we do that? Right? Like how do we um, help inform people that these things are interconnected? Like we know um, through Polaris, which is an amazing research initiative in the states, that where does sexual exploitation take place? Like where does sex trafficking happen? Strip clubs, massage parlors, 
Airbnbs, hotels and motels on the street. Yeah, like we we know that. Now, that being said, there's consensual sex work and there are people who are there by choice. But we also know that crimes are being take that take place Mm -hmm. in these spaces. And so helping people be more aware to identify the indicators, I think, would help um, just people recognize what they're contributing to, just like with watching pornography, Mm -hmm. how that's linking and driving an industry that is perpetuating violence in particular against women. You're making me a flashback to one scenario, uh, working the door. So I, I spent, I want to say 15 years off the top of my head, working in clubs, uh, mostly in Toronto, working the door. And I, you know, I remember we had this big lineup this one time, and this guy probably in his late 20s, early 30s, well-dressed, with a group of like five or six, uh, you know, not too young, but younger than him, certainly girls, uh, beautiful girls, all you know, dressed to go out, um, and he wanted to like give me a few hundred bucks to let them in ahead of the line, and it just makes me think. I'm like, here's this one guy calling the shots with a wad full of cash. Let me usher these, you know, six girls into your club. I, I wonder how much of that goes on, hmm. uh, especially in a city like Toronto. Yeah, probably a lot. I imagine, or even just like the recruiting process within some of these spaces, right? And this is where. For me, one of the things that connects me with the issue deeply. So I am not a trafficked, I'm not a person who's been trafficked. I haven't been sexually exploited, but I, in my my life, um, have been exploited and taken advantage of in different means. And a lot of the things when you start looking at what makes someone vulnerable to being trafficked are things that um, I would identify with. Mm. And so by God's grace, I wasn't trafficked, but I know that if I met a Romeo pimp, when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, even 19, I would have easily been someone that they could have groomed and manipulated and, and, and been trafficked. Part of that is because of my desire and want to be loved. And I was looking for love in all the wrong places. And I, was, I put myself um, in situations that could have been very dangerous, um, had certain things not played out or happened um, the way that they did. And so I think, like, I think about even, like, clubbing or, like, when I used to go into a club, right? And just, like, almost, like, yeah, just that, that, that void and insecurity that I had in myself, a Romeo pimp could have identified that in me and come alongside of and, like, hey, like, I'll buy you drinks. Like, hey, like, oh, let's go. Like, I'll look my fancy car. I'll take you out for dinner and, like, spend weeks, like, romancing me. Like, I would have thought, you know, this is what I've been watching in Hollywood movies my whole right, life, yeah. right? Like this is wow, wow. That, that just really what you just said that really <clears throat> hit it with me because we've been in our culture thanks to Disney, and I'm not saying Disney is a bad organization, right? It's just like your Snow White, your Cinderella, that prince that comes to save the princess in distress, right? <clears throat> and romances her and treats her, you know, puts her on this pedestal, Beauty and the Beast too, like all of that, and it's such a um, like a meme in our culture, it is a you know is a deep rooted kind of story that we mm-hmm. that we identify with or that we aspire to, and so when someone knows that and they come and they they kind of fill that void of that right, you're like this is it, this is the one. Absolutely, yeah, and it, and we see it even like in malls, right? Like a group of friends will be together and a trafficker will introduce themselves, and these these traffickers are charming people. They're charismatic, you know. Like you like you wouldn't necessarily see someone be like, oh, they're probably a trafficker. Like it's not your stereotypical things that you would identify. And so they might come to this group and start talking to the girls, and they see the one who's maybe a bit more reserved or is seeming insecure or doesn't 
you know, consents that she doesn't feel like she's beautiful. And and we'll start to replace whatever those insecurities are with, um, you know, sharing words of affirmation mm. or um, whether their insecurity is like, oh, all my friends have really fancy purses and I don't have one. And he fills that need or they have all the nice iPhones. He buys that iPhone, right? Mm. So he does, yeah. Like you just mentioned, like in a Disney movie, someone sweeping in and just like being like, I'm offering you this new life. And, mm. and, and that's often what people are are told and and um, conditioned to think this is normal yeah <laughs> that it should be yeah and um and just also like there's a lot of false promises a lot of false hopes right like we're gonna live a better life together i think of a mom who recently shared with me um that their daughter met someone online and they were chatting and every time like yeah she would be upset about something maybe it was about family then he would come in and being like oh like you know what, like, I can offer you a better life, like, just, you should come move with me, we'll have a better future together, but there's this promise that, like, what they can do is to, like, help them out of whatever hurt they're facing in their life, whether that's in their home, whether it's with their friends, or whether it's about their own self-worth, and um, this, this mom was able to review these messages, saw them manipulating conversation called the police the police looked into it and it turns out he was a part of a major trafficking ring wow. yeah and then just two days ago i was reading a report about yeah just online and how traffickers are finding people online someone posts online like i'm so fat and they'll come and be like no like you're beautiful someone will post online um you know i i my parents can't believe they told me that I can't go out again. Like, they don't know anything. And they'll come and be like, yeah, you're a grown-up. You you can make your own decisions. I see you as, like, an independent person. Mm-hmm. And they just retell the story in a way that makes that person feel, like, understood. You hit on another topic there with online the online risk <clears throat> to kids. Um, well, to people in general, but I think to kids and to young mm-hmm. teens as, as they grow up. What are the risks that exist online, not just online, but like through apps? And uh, what what can <coughs> I mean? I have two kids and one on the way. Like that, especially with uh, the younger one, the girl, like era. That uh, really <laughs> it terrifies me. The thought of the risks that exist out there and the predators that exist out there. What can parents do to help uh, shield? Their, you can't shield your kids from everything, but what can you do to help prepare them for this and to help make sure that they don't, um, you know, that they don't uh, fall prey to these kind of tactics? Mm-hmm. What What's something that parents can do? So I have a whole curriculum I've developed on parenting in a sexualized culture. Great. So I hit some of these synergies <clears throat> with pornography and sex trafficking and, and healthy relationships and consent and, and abuse, right? Like, and how can we open these conversations with children at the appropriate time? So I'm not going to be able to cover it all now, right. but if anyone's interested that's listening, I do speaking engagements for free and so does my team. So we'd be happy to come, you know, dive into some of any of these topics and discuss more in detail. Um, but some of the things that you can do, especially as it comes to social media is uh, say you have an older child being aware of what they're using online what they have access to there are different um, uh, security structures you can place in your home that control what kind of sites and websites are allowed to be accessed because the scary sad thing is is you know take the movie frozen for example there are people who have created pornography videos with similar Disney titles. And if you just make one typo, that will come up. Mm. And so a child could unknowingly, accidentally open a video. Um, it could be at the age of eight, seven, right? Like we know young people are being exposed. And then now they're seeing a sexual act that um, 
is very harmful to their mind and maybe they've never even had a conversation about relationships or about body parts and they're seeing this and this is very damaging and then they feel a sense of shame and then they can't talk about this mm. and share with it. So first you can pro- like help protect your child from that exposure by ensuring those websites can't access into your home. I think also though throughout like your relationship and journey with your child um, having open conversations like sex for example isn't like a one-time conversation Mm -hmm. but an ongoing one and helping um, your child realize um, what a healthy relationship looks like how it happens and what it's not because often in trafficking situations too right it might start as what seems as a healthy normative relationship with with kind and care but there are clues there are red flags of manipulation of um feeling trapped of being blackmailed and just having conversations even at a young age about you know what's you know okay what's not okay and um you know what's appropriate touch what's inappropriate touch um helping equip your child to be able to recognize those things in themselves and in others um because we know also child abuse for example is rampant in in our society and so we need to give kids tools to be able to know that they can share and that they can communicate and it's nothing that they did wrong um and so that they can come forward and seek the support and and help that they need if if so um you know i'm at a loss for words but if if something terrible was to happen to a kid that they would know that they were safe talking to their family that Mm -hmm. it would be okay to share um about these things i know the children advocacy centers in ontario as well there's one simcoe muskoka Named Sherry Fraser. She's been doing a lot of great work going into public schools, helping kids recognize sexual abuse and how to talk about it and how to um, seek support um, in those situations. But those are just a few of the things I think parents can do, but just being intentional, having conversations, knowing the appropriate times to share, because if a parent's not going to be talking to them about sex and pornography and even trafficking, we know other people are. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, we want to make sure that in, in, if, if the home environment is a safe place that they're hearing it from the people who are caring from them. Okay, so we have <coughs> you know, educate, getting education on it, right? To learn the signs and to learn more about it itself. Uh, trafficking is a subject, <clears throat> how it happens, what it looks like. There's, um, <clears throat> you know, finding ways, maybe resources we have, whether they be a financial or a skill, a teachable skill or something like this, or Again, some form of shelter um, that we can provide for victims of trafficking. Um, there's continuing education with things coming up like your Empower Conference, right? Um, is there anything else? What, what other things um, can, can somebody do that's concerned about this that wants to help? Um, so as people start to like identify those gifts and skills that they have and, and how they can help, um, that can channel into like different volunteer opportunities or just supporting the organization in different ways. So we mentioned education. So that's kind of my actual job. <laughs> we haven't talked much about it, but education and research in particular. And I'm working on launching a community educator program. So what that looks like is someone who's passionate about public speaking or um, maybe they have experience teaching, they can be trained and, and understand this curriculum and content and then help be a part of going into schools, into community groups to raise awareness because we need as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. But I also have people who are writers or bloggers and 
people who love research who are helping just to create online content that we can share to help get some of this information out there and in different platforms. Um, so those are the ways that I would say people like can get involved. So volunteering, but the reason I share that one example is it's so broad. There's so many different ways that you can support. Maybe you're a graphic design person and you want to assist that way. Maybe you have, um, you know, a colleague who is um, in law enforcement, you're like, oh, I want to make this connection and partnership because collaboration is always needed or a counselor. Um, uh, those are some of the ways giving financially and then being an advocate and raising awareness and whatever means and ways that you can. And having an impact, I would say, like within your own circle of influence too. Think about your coworkers. How could you bring this knowledge to the people that you work with? How could you bring this knowledge to your family, to your friends um, to help prevent people from being trafficked? But then also like we were talking about like John's purchases of sex are are everyday people um too and like so how can we help just the more we educate the more we raise awareness the society hopefully will start to shift mm. and we'll start to see a move away from our our hyper sexualized culture that is driving a lot of this so what are you saying <clears throat> to our listeners out there is that regardless of what your skill set is or is not there's something that you can do to mm -hmm. help uh, if you're passionate about it, if there's something that you're concerned about, there's something that you can do. Um, so you can reach out to uh, Fight for Free. I mean, I'm sure there's other organizations they can work with too. However, because <clears throat> it sounds to me that all you care about is that it gets done, not necessarily who does it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And as an organization, we're the same way. So when yeah. we talk to a partner organization, they say, oh, we're going to do outreach in this area or we want to start this education initiative. Great. Awesome. Power yeah. to you. Can we support you? Can we share our resources with you? Can we work together? Because we really need to work together yeah, in the order problem, to... The problem is pretty big. Yes. The right? problem is yeah. very big. Yeah. We need everyone. In, we don't need more division, right? Yeah. We need to find a way to come together together okay so um let's hit up some of your uh websites your social media where can people contact you to get involved so our website is fightforfreedom.ca we also have a facebook page and an instagram um handle and our handle is at fightforfreedom.ca and uh, the fight for freedom for anyone listening it's fight uh numeral four freedom fight for the number for freedom.ca and if we go to fightforfreedom.ca the website we can find information on the empower conference in april has that been uploaded yet we don't know <laughs> well when it is if it isn't now when it is that's where you yeah. can uh, you can uh, get your information on that and one more thing i just wanted to share on that front is that we do speaking engagements um, at conferences, in schools. I just spoke to um, students from the age of 7 to 12 last week. And so if you are a listener and you're like, I would love for you to come share with my community group, maybe your, your faith-based um, uh place of, wait, I'm going to re-say that. Maybe um, you have a community group or a church or a school um, or even like a group of friends where you want to learn more information about trafficking. You can invite us to come in and to share with you. Um, we would be really happy and honored to do that. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Oh, just before we go, um, Fight for Freedom is a company based in Toronto. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we're based in Toronto, but we have um, folks across Ontario. We are starting to move in Eastern Canada as well as we have someone in South Asia. Okay, great. So yeah. you can reach out to Michaela at Fight for Freedom. Well, do you have an email address that they can they can reach out to you specifically, or do you just want them to go to their website and kind of use the contact form there? 
Yeah. So if you go to our website, we have a contact us okay. page so you can indicate like how you're looking to get involved or if you want more information and um, someone will be in touch with you from our team. Okay, great. And, and Michaela will also be uh, next week, October 18th. She'll be at the Gray Man Security Conference to present information again on uh, trafficking and fight for freedom. Um, so that's 18th to 20th. That's in Mississauga. And you can find information on that at graymansecurity.com. And uh, we look forward to seeing you then, Michaela. Thank yeah. you for coming today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it.